Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. These are pretty dark times for a lot of people. Right now, lots of us are struggling to pay the bills and stay warm. The things we took for granted in Britain, the NHS, being able to catch a train even, are falling apart. And hanging over everything is the climate emergency and the fear and uncertainty that brings. Natasha Walter is an author and activist who's written about feminism and founded the charity Women for Refugee Women. She's now working on a memoir about her mother and how she takes inspiration from her life. Natasha, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So your mother, Ruth Walter, died five years ago, and she wasn't a famous woman. She wasn't well known. But in the 60s, she became involved in a protest movement in quite a powerful way. Tell us about that. Yes. So as you say, my mother died five years ago, and I realized that when I was grieving her, I wasn't only grieving her as a person and what she meant to me personally, but there was also something about the political legacy that she and my father left me that I really, I found more and more powerful and more and more inspiring. So as you say, she was involved in the nuclear disarmament movement in the 1960s, and particularly in an aspect of it that I think is often forgotten, a very radical wing of the nuclear disarmament movement called the Committee of 100. I think people aren't that aware of how quite how radical some of those 60s movements were in Britain at that time, because this group was dedicated rather like Extinction Rebellion now, was dedicated from the start, not to conventional forms of campaigning, but to civil disobedient, nonviolent direct action. And its members were quite unusual in that they were all ready to take part in civil disobedience. They ran the risk of arrest. They ran the risk of long prison sentences. So some of my parents' close friends went to prison for long periods, a year, 18 months. And my parents themselves ran the risk of very long prison sentences for some of the activities that they were involved in. And looking back at that movement, obviously in some ways, you could say it failed. It didn't achieve its ostensible objective, which was to ban the bomb, to stop nuclear weapons being produced, being cited in Britain. But in another way, I find it quite inspiring because of the fact that it galvanized ordinary people to say, politics is too important just to be left to politicians. We want to be active. We want to have a say. And in a way, they did create the political culture that we associate with the 1960s this move away from deference, this move away from very conventional ways of doing politics. And I think even though that group, the Committee of 100, didn't last that long, what I feel looking back is there's something of its spirit, I feel, that did continue, that was bequeathed to other organizations, other groups, ways of working that have persisted, I think, on the left, in protest movements way beyond the 60s. So I think, for instance, I think you can see its spirit moving up again in Greenham Common. I think you can definitely see it in Extinction Rebellion. But also I think you can see it in in just the way that people engage with politics ever since the 60s and are more prepared, I think, to question authority, to question politicians. And I think that's very important. And I think For me, it's very important to reconnect with that spirit of resistance now. 
And she was herself imprisoned a few times, wasn't she? No, she was. My mother was not imprisoned. She was arrested a number of times. She was fined, but she wasn't imprisoned. My father had a custodial sentence once. He went to prison once. That was actually for heckling Harold Wilson and George Brown during a church service during the Labour Party conference. So it was actually an anti-Vietnam War protest. You know, it was very important to the anti-war movement at that time to ensure that Britain stayed out of the war and didn't support the United States in this, you know, what we can see now was an absolutely appalling war that, that violated human rights on so many levels. And so he heckled in church and he and a friend was were sent to prison for a month. And interestingly, the offence was, I think, indecent behaviour in church, which caused a lot of mirth <laughs> among fellow prisoners. And you're an activist with Extinction Rebellion now, and you've also been arrested, haven't you? Yes. Did you think of your parents while you were being held? Yes, I did, though I think it was after my first arrest that that came forward to me more more powerfully. I think I got involved in Extinction Rebellion, as so many people did. I'd been feeling quite sort of isolated, quite lonely and anxious in thinking about the climate emergency. It felt as though there was this sort of this kind of rumble of more and more worrying news and scientific evidence coming forward about the impact of climate change and the the scale of environmental damage. And I felt, you know, where is the urgency in society? And when Extinction Rebellion rose up, you know, in 2019, I was galvanized to join them and take part. And I was first arrested in October 2019. And I did it really, I felt, yes, this is the time. We, we need to join up. And I found a very powerful sense of connection in finding other people that shared that sense of urgency. And did you know much about your mother's work while she was alive? Did she talk about it much? I knew a certain amount about it. I think my father was a writer as well as an activist, so I knew more, I think, about his involvement. I'd read a certain amount of his writing. I knew a certain amount about them, but I think I'd, you know, particularly as my mother aged, I think I'd rather forgotten about that side of her. And then after her death, as I was looking back at her life and thinking about why she died in the way that she did, because she took her own life, and thinking about what a courageous woman she was and her determination to live life on her own terms and die on her own terms. And then her involvement in political activism came forward to me very powerfully. And she died in 2017. And for me, I think that time was a very low point politically. You know, we'd just experienced Brexit here, the election of Trump in the United States. It was a very difficult time, I think, for people on the left, as times still are. And to be able to look back and think again about how people do stay active, even at times of despair, it's very important to me at the moment to do that and to try and let's remind ourselves about why we do stay active. Because, of course, we can look back at the 1960s, can't we, and think, well, these young people who came out onto the streets to protest nuclear weapons, well, things weren't that bad. You know, the world didn't disappear in a mushroom cloud at that time. But they thought that they were facing the possibility of a nuclear apocalypse. And so I think the way that they reacted to that, I think it does have resonances for us now. 
and for us and, and for the younger generation, as we look forward and think, what are we facing now? Are we facing some kind of apocalyptic scenario? And what are we going to do to try and make sure that isn't the case? It's interesting because the story we often tell ourselves about the 60s is one of hedonism. And yet, clearly, this is a very different story that you you learnt about your parents' involvement in resistance movements. I was wondering, do we have a tendency to remember resistance movements you know, in, through, through everything that's happened since? And we, we forget sometimes about the more problematic things they did. Thinking particularly, I don't know, about the suffragettes recently and some of the things they did that were an awful lot more violent than anything Just Stop Oil is doing at the moment. And yet we seem to forget about that, don't we? Absolutely. I think that's completely spot on. We remember the successful movements. So we remember the suffragettes. We remember the civil rights movement in the States. It's really important to remember those movements. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Absolutely vital. But I think it's also really important to remember the movements that didn't have quite the effects that they have maybe had slightly different effects. And as you say, I think often we kind of whitewash the movements. People taking part in radical movements don't really know what effect they're going to have. And they do make mistakes as well as doing the right thing. And I think if you look back at the suffragettes, absolutely, people have forgotten just how cavalier they were with people's safety. Yes, their actions were targeted on property, not people. But that didn't mean that people didn't get hurt through some, you know, there were letter bombs, there were fire bombs in theatres, in churches, there were attacks on properties where, you know, fires were set in properties. Yes, most of them were empty, but they weren't that careful about what happened to people. They were really violent. I mean, for instance, there was a group of women on trial just now for breaking windows at Barclays who were inspired by suffragettes' actions in breaking windows. So they were protesting against Barclays' links to, to fossil fuel because Barclays has financed so many fossil fuel projects. But if you look at the way they so carefully broke their windows, you know, just carefully, carefully cracking them, absolutely no danger to people compared to the way that the suffragettes would have smashed windows with quite a disregard for the people around them. And I think it is, it is important to remember that, that radical movements can often be rather demonised and marginalised at the time. Because non-violent direct action is getting a bad press. And even on the left at the moment, I hear a lot of people on the left saying, this is madness, it's, particularly when it's attacks on anything approaching art, it's philistinism, it's, it's counterproductive. What's your take on it? I think it's really important to remember there's a range of non-violent direct action going on at the moment. And it's some of the stunts that get the most media attention, but there are also other actions. I mean, in April, oil terminals were blocked by Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion, hundreds of arrests, which was directly targeted on the fossil fuel industry. I took part in an action a couple of weeks ago targeting organizations with links to fossil fuel industries, non-disruptive, you know, there was pouring of paint, there was reciting of poetry in front of organizations with links in different ways, whether financing or engaging in PR for fossil fuel companies. It's often the more disruptive actions that get more media attention, but I think nonviolent direct action can work in different ways at different times. And I do feel 
that what's happening at the moment is that at least this kind of civil disobedience is opening up a space for discussion. And it's truly demonstrating the urgency of what we face. I think too often there is this extraordinary sense of inertia given what we are facing. You know, these threats to climate stability, to food security, to humanity and the planet. The threats that we're facing at the moment, the lack of urgency is incredible given the scale of the action that's needed. So I do feel that this the civil disobedience we see at least is raising the alarm. And it's not happening on its own. I think that's a really important thing to remember as well. It's part of a wider movement that's using, you know, other methods as well to challenge the fossil fuel industry, whether it's litigation, development of alternatives, there's a huge spectrum of actions taking place. And my feeling is, you know, we, the people taking action, are often painted as the extremists. We're not the extremists. The extremists are those people that are pushing the world to this kind of instability, which may have the gravest of repercussions for the next generation. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. When I saw a Just Stop oil protest recently at Piccadilly Circus and they were they were blocking the um, the junction basically and so there were drivers getting out and getting very angry and you I think began to realize the strength of will that it takes to be involved in this kind of protest and the camaraderie that must develop between people involved in it because it's very hard to sit there and be yelled at and be abused and sometimes even be assaulted and obviously police were trying to stop that but nonetheless it was happening is that your experience that you develop a, an a, an extra if you like sense of solidarity from being involved in a protest like that Yes, definitely. I think that was one of the things that really drew me to Extinction Rebellion. I remember going down to the April Rebellion in 2019. And as I say, you know, I was feeling quite isolated. In my, I'm not saying that I didn't know other people that felt the climate emergency was important, but quite isolated. And what I did feel walking into this space, it was a very peaceful demonstration compared to others later because the police response was not as punitive. And they'd managed to open this space where people were coming together, connecting, talking about what needed to be done. And there was this huge sense of connection. I mean, talking to people now, they talk about a kind of spiritual energy that they felt there, an extraordinary sense of camaraderie and connectedness coming together. And despite the fact that I mean, times have changed, and now you do see this very repressive police response, which makes it very hard for those kind of spaces to be opened in central London by protest movements. I think there is still something about that very extraordinary sense of connection. And really, I know this isn't, I mean, the point of Extinction Rebellion or Just Stop Oil is how does it connect with others? How does it persuade wider communities, wider audiences to act. 
But in my experience, the internal experience is also something that's worth talking about. And for me personally, it's been wonderful. It's been extraordinary. It's been something like nothing else I've ever experienced in my life, that sense of solidarity, kindness, connection. And as you say, the the sort of peaceful strength that people show in the face of this anger is incredible. I mean, everybody who takes part in actions, you know, tends to go through a kind of training around how to stay calm, how to de-escalate around nonviolent communication. But it, it does seem to be something that people also just learn by observing others. And this example, I think, is, I find it very inspiring. Women have a particular history in protest movements. I mean, you can think of the suffragettes, you can think perhaps of Rosa Parks not moving on the bus in America. And I wonder sometimes, is that because our vulnerability, additional vulnerability, draws attention to the protest, if you like. And how how do we feel about that? I think that's part of it. And I think that female protesters can get a certain kind of attention, both positive and negative, because of being women going out into this public space and making yourself vulnerable in this way. But I also think there's a strength about women coming together in these movements. I remember going to embrace the base with Greenham Common, you know, when I was much younger and finding this extraordinary power in seeing so many women gathered together. And it's interesting, I think, that many women find Extinction Rebellion such a comfortable place to organise. It is female-dominated. Having said that, I do want to say I am completely aware that's a certain kind of women. Extinction Rebellion has enormous problems in reaching more diverse people. Um, It's mainly... you know, those who are prepared to take part in civil disobedience, they are white, we are white. And I think it, you know, that is a huge issue. So when I talk about women finding it comfortable, I'm aware that it's a specific and self-selecting group of women to a great degree. But I think it's the non-hierarchical nature of these protest movements often makes it a very comfortable space for women. This emphasis on non-violence makes it comfortable for women. There's this kind of group disapproval in Extinction Rebellion of anything that's more kind of confrontational, that's, you know, that's sweary, that's angry, that's ranty. And I think that means that as women, it it makes it easier to take part. And this emphasis as well on, on creativeness and connection can often be very comfortable for women. So I think there's a strength in that. But as you say, I think you know, you can often see the media homing in on images of young women looking beautiful and vulnerable at protests, whether for Extinction Rebellion or for other. We saw that recently in um, the vigil for women who are victims of male violence. And I think, you know, that's part of the way that women are seen by the media that, yeah, is problematic. What do you think your mother would have thought of your involvement now? I suppose I'm also thinking of my own mother died nearly 14 years ago and she was quite politically active, though not nearly so um, radical as as, uh, your mother. But I often think of her with all the things politically that have happened since and what her reaction would have been and what she would have thought of what I was doing. Do you have a similar thing happening? Yes, I definitely think of what my parents would have thought of what I'm doing. And I can't speak for them, but I think they would be 
I think they probably would be there in Extinction Rebellion in some way. I'm now involved in a group of writers in Extinction Rebellion called Writers Rebel. And at one of their events, I read something that my father had written about the protests in the 1960s. And I found it remarkably apposite because it was not only about the need for disobedience, the importance of disobedience, it was also about the increasing repression by the state on protesters, which of course is what we're seeing now with the increasingly punitive policing practice and legislation. So yes, I feel that they would probably be there walking alongside me or sitting down alongside me and they would have lessons, you know, they have experience that they would be able to pass on. And I'm sorry that I can't hear those lessons. And the book that I'm publishing next year, I suppose, is partly my own way of trying to reconnect with with that generation. Natasha, thanks so much for joining me. And Natasha is writing Before the Light Fades, a memoir of grief and resistance, which is going to be out in August 2023, published by Virago. At The Bunker, we try to bring you interviews you won't find elsewhere. If you'd like to support us, just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Alex Rees and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Artwork by James Parrott, with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.